1: hello and welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast for those of you that are new here the breaching extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them there are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left and they are currently threatened by lack of prey vessel noise and water toxins all these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea, however, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives, I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks! Hello everybody and welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. Uh, this week I am here with Erin Meyer Gutbrod. Uh, she's an assistant professor at the university of South Carolina. How are you doing today, Erin? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? How did you get into this industry? I'd love to learn more about you. Yeah, so I'm
0: actually from Cleveland, Ohio, so nowhere near the ocean, and I did my undergrad degree in physics, uh, which I really enjoyed, but I wanted to sort of connect that to something that was solving the environmental crisis that I saw unfolding around us. And so I stumbled a bit by chance into a marine ecology PhD at Cornell, and I started working on this project with right whales and have been pretty much studying right whales ever since.
1: So I suppose that would have been more than 10 years ago. Wow, that's crazy. I'm from Columbus originally, so also from nowhere near the ocean. <laughs> you know, a lot of Ohio people wind up doing ocean things. It's, it is kind of random. I've definitely noticed like if it's like like if it's a non-coastal person, they're usually from Ohio. Yeah.
0: Like, <laughs> well, you know, I lived right on the Great Lake, right on Lake Erie. And so it, it's got an ocean-like feel to
1: it. That makes sense. Yeah. I think I grew up going to the Columbus Zoo a lot and there were manatees that I was like very interested in. I think that's what's. Oh,
0: started. very cool.
1: Yes. Um. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about North Atlantic right whales.
0: Yeah, so North Atlantic right whales are big baleen whales, and that means that they're filter feeders, and they feed on really small bugs in the water called zooplankton. And you might have seen right whales in the news a lot, and the reason is because right whales are critically endangered. So they spend most of their time near the coasts of the U.S. and Canada in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, You know, and hundreds of years ago, they started to be depleted due to heavy whaling. And about 100 years ago, when the population was extremely small, we don't know how small, but probably less than 100 animals, we stopped whaling and hoped that the population would start to recover. And so other species that experienced heavy whaling pressure Um, did start to recover. But North Atlantic right whales did not recover as well as these other species that were finally released from whaling pressure. And the reason is mostly because they live so close to the coast of North America that they're constantly interacting with humans in disastrous ways. So, you know, we're no longer going out and seeking to kill them, but we're still running into them accidentally with our boats Or, you know, we set up a lot of fishing gear, crab traps, lobster traps, and whales get caught up in the ropes. And, you know, and sometimes they're able to shake this entanglement and sometimes they're not and it kills them. So, those are sort of the main reasons that this animal hasn't been able to rebound. But my work has really focused on how climate change is causing uh, declines or redistributions in the food that they eat. And so having less food available is really tough because then the females can't get fat enough to reproduce. Mm -hmm. You know, baleen whales have to build up a really thick blubber layer um, Mm -hmm. in order to uh, be able to get pregnant, carry that pregnancy successfully, and most especially nurse their calf for a year. So I've been studying sort of this, um, this relationship between prey availability and reproduction. And then recently uh, in 2017, the right whales experienced this unexpected mortality event. And so all, you know, we're used to seeing a a couple of whale carcasses in the water each year, um, you know, maybe two or three in US waters, perhaps one in Canadian waters. And in 2017, we found 17 whale carcasses. And the strange thing is most of them were up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So in Canadian waters farther north than we're used to seeing them feed. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is climate change pushed their prey around and right whales had to figure out a new spot to feed. And when they started feeding in this totally new place, there were no protections in place. You know, usually we slow boats down, or we route them around major right whale feeding spots. Mm-hmm. We're also careful about the fishing gear that we put in the water, but right whales wound up in this place that we don't put any of these protective policies in place. And so without protections, they were dying at much higher rates than we've seen in the past. So since 2017, since this unexpected mortality event began, we're trying to figure out, you know, how is climate change impacting their prey? How is it impacting where the right whales are spending their time and how should we be responding when we're implementing these protective policies to
1: reduce human-caused deaths? That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so how did you go about conducting this study?
0: Well, um... A lot of the work that's done in right whales looks in small areas. For example, Cape Cod Bay is really well studied because there's just a lot of survey effort. It's really accessible work to do. Um, But, you know, in 2017, this redistribution happens. Right whales wound up, you know, a thousand kilometers from where we expected. And I wanted to take a step back. And look really broadly over all of the places that we've seen right whales spend their time and sort of ask these broad questions about their distribution, you know, how they're spending time in these different habitats in these different seasons and how that distribution has been changing recently due to anthropogenic climate change. So what I did was I sort of took a big step back and looked at the full range of right whale observations that we've had available in the past 30 years. Um, And I broke this map, you know, most of the North Atlantic up into regions that are considered right whale habitats. So sort of these specialized polygons that right whales exhibit specific behaviors in. Like I mentioned, Cape Cod Bay is one. The Bay of Fundy is a place where right whales feed in the summer. The Scotian Shelf, like Roseway Basin, is a spot where they feed in the fall. And then um, pregnant females migrate down to the southeast U.S. off the coast of South Carolina and Georgia and Florida and give birth. So I broke up the North Atlantic into these smaller habitats and looked at how the whales were using these habitats um, through the year, you know, by each month. And to see if their seasonal use of those habitats was changing between the 1990s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. And I really wanted to pull out, you know, how have right whales been using their space differently in the most recent years? And perhaps that can help us understand how right whales will continue to redistribute. Because what I really want to see happen is for us to either develop really good predictive models of where right whales are going to be spending their time Mm -hmm. or really good dynamic policies so that we're adjusting our protective policies sort of as right whales are moving. I don't want to see another
1: unexpected mortality event the way it happened in 2017. Absolutely. So obviously there's a lot of moving parts with the policies and you guys are still figuring out, you know, exactly what they're doing. Um have you guys tried to put more or or made any efforts to put more policies in place and what sort of policies would you be looking to enforce um along the coast of North America?
0: Yeah, no that's a great question. So uh, first of all, I've got to hand it to Canada because in 2017 as this body count started climbing, you know, and the whole thing is so unexpected um canada implemented new protective policies really quickly and so they were i think a model of good behavior in the face of this unexpected species redistribution so you know things they were doing were implementing slowdowns um in the traffic the vessel traffic that's crossing the gulf of st lawrence they developed a really nice grid a fisheries grid and um came up with this policy where if a whale is seen within a specific grid box and then seen again, uh, the fishermen have to go to that grid box and pull their gear out of that that grid cell. And then if whales are seen again in that same area, then that grid cell cannot be fished in for the rest of the season. So they developed these policies really quickly. And the most important part is that they really increased survey effort, you know, so we weren't looking for right whales at all in the Gulf of St. Lawrence or Mm -hmm. not, not at all, but very limitedly. Um, But then once these carcasses started turning up, you know, Canada began flying airplanes over the Gulf of St. Lawrence, um, doing vessel-based surveys, putting in acoustics, right? So these instruments that listen for right whales underwater, And if you want to have policies that are able to react to new distributions in the species, the most important thing that you have to do is monitor for that species. Because if you're not looking for the whales, you're not going to find them. You know, they may be there, they may not be. But if we're not looking, we're never going to know. So that's sort of the best thing that Canada did was they really increased their monitoring effort and then developed some nice policies in response. I'd like to see the U.S., Um, implement dynamic policies uh, a little bit more rigorously and follow suit alongside Canada. I'll say that NOAA has proposed a new rule this summer and it's currently under review. And they are trying to really strengthen the policies in U.S. waters to reduce the chances that we're hitting right whales with our boats and that they're tangled up in our fishing gear.
1: Makes sense. Okay. That's, that's excellent. Um, so is, what sort of function do our right whales hold in the entire ecosystem and also how many right whales are left?
0: Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, so the reason right whales are considered critically endangered is because we think there's only 340 left in the whole species. She the is number is so small that it makes some of our work admittedly feel futile. Um, so, yeah, there's not a there's not a lot left, but we've seen them bounce back from this population size before they were in the mid 300s, um, you know, in the 1990s and then a really good decade of feeding. And they were up approaching, you know, 500 animals in the species. So we've seen them rebound pretty successfully. And then we just kind of hit them again with this um, sort of new exposure to risk, Mm
1: -hmm. right?
0: So yeah, it's that number, that, that number that just got released by the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium a few weeks ago, but 340 animals, it's like a punch in the gut.
1: For sure. Obviously, you know, scientists are very like objective people. That's, you know, what science is, but I'm sure there's this emotional component that you're talking about of feeling punched in the gut. How are you able to, or or your teammates, you know, kind of keep the hope or keep things going when it seems like doom and gloom sometimes?
0: Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, I think that number, is very motivating. Right. And I feel very motivated to pursue my work. And I think other scientists in the right whale community would say the same because we're working in a system where we really do have this concrete chance to make a difference, an observable difference, you know, within our lifetime. Mm. And there's not a lot of systems that scientists work in where they can say that. For sure. So I think, you know that helps a lot. The community is also really big and it's growing. You know, since the right whale well crisis has gotten more severe, the effort has increased, and and we're just seeing a lot more people at the annual consortium meetings. Um, we're seeing, truthfully, we're seeing a lot of investment by industries. Uh, fishermen are truly working hard to figure out a way to keep fishing while really reducing risk to right whales. And it's a super controversial topic. And you'll get completely different answers depending uh, depending on who you're talking to. But for example, um, people are developing ropeless fishing gear. And it's the system to do this pot fishing, like lobster pots, crab traps, that kind of thing, Without ever having any vertical line in the water, you sort of set the trap. There's no buoy up at the surface. The trap is just on its own on the seafloor. You let it soak for a couple of days, weeks, however long, depending on the fishery. And then you return to the trap when it's time to collect the trap and whatever is inside of it. And you send this sound, this acoustic signal into the water. And that causes the trap to release a line with a buoy on it that floats to the surface, right? So the only time there's a line in the water column is just at that moment that the fisherman has returned to collect the trap. You know, it's been a lot of work to develop that methodology. And there's a lot of fishermen that are working hard to test it and sort of expand its implementation. And that's really inspiring to see this work happen so quickly and to see so many people work together you know, to reduce the risk to this critically endangered animal.
1: Definitely. So do you find that community-based initiatives, like what you're saying with the fishermen of them kind of trying to come up with solutions, are more effective than maybe government-implemented solutions? Well, I
0: think that ropeless fishing gear in particular would do better with more government support. Gotcha. I think we'd all like to see sort of a robust subsidy program because this gear is really expensive. You know, and it's hard to get in fishermen's hands. It's hard to um, make a lot of this gear all at once. You have to train the fishermen to use it. It's a huge problem when you think about it. Um, And I think we'd all like to see the government provide some more financial support to make this feasible and to get it implemented rapidly. Gotcha. So I think there really is a place for the government, you know, and Canada has once again, you know, they've done a really good job investing a lot of money into this problem. And so we've seen really rapid change up there and and I'm hoping that the U S is going to follow suit. Absolutely.
1: Um, Yeah. Hopefully it seems like Canada definitely is a lot more on it than we are sometimes um on the west coast as well it just depends on the issue though of course of course yes so obviously you know we're talking about fishing gear and all these other kind of solutions that are you know we're wanting to adapt to the right whales do you think that we also need to make you know progress as far as climate change and you know ideally reversing some of the impacts of climate change
0: Yeah, I mean, this, the work that I do is really climate driven. And it is a major component of what's happening to this population. You know, we've seen really clear evidence that climate driven shifts in prey is depressing reproduction. You know, and of course, a population that's not making babies is not going to grow. So that's, of course, a severe problem. But then this whole uncertainty in right whale distribution has sort of thrown us for a loop. There's this new avenue that climate change is negatively impacting the population because the distribution of their prey is just way less predictable. If we can't predict where their food is, we can't predict where the the whales are, and that means that we can't protect them, right? So it's hurting, climate change is hurting the whales in two ways, depressing their reproduction and making their distribution unpredictable, thus exposing them to greater risk of anthropogenic mortality. And, you know, at this point, if you wanna save right whales, you know, climate change remediation is, it's gonna happen too slowly. So we have to have policies in place that are dealing with the direct impacts Mm -hmm. But climate change remediation is still an important part of the solution. And it's not just right whales that are experiencing these, you know, climate driven declines and increased risk. You know, we could go on and on about all the other systems that are negatively impacted by climate change. Something that's been really interesting to watch unfold is the um, expansion of wind energy development along the Eastern seaboard. And most of me thinks it's a great idea, right? If we want to get a handle on the climate change problem, we need to start really embracing alternative energies and wind is gonna be a part of the solution, right? So it's really exciting to see this wind farm development On the other hand, you know, as a right whale biologist, we're also concerned that, you know, this really good thing, this development of alternative energy infrastructure, could negatively impact this very small, critically endangered species. So that's been um, it's been a really difficult topic to deal with because there's just so much benefit and so much risk. Mm -hmm. And there's so many unknowns, you know, how are these wind farms going to impact right whales? I could speculate here forever about the different potential impacts, you know, increased vessel traffic due to construction and maintenance, noise reducing their communication space, Um, you know, local changes in the oceanographic features impacting their prey availability. We've talked about it, you know, for hours and hours. But we just don't really have data. So we don't know how the wind farms are going to impact these animals. We just hate to see it hurt them, considering this population really cannot handle any more instability or any increased risk.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, definitely a very fragile population with a lot of complex issues and things to think about. Um, Is there a way to get data on this or potentially find answers before you know, implementing these wind farms? Well, we're trying to build models.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're trying to build models that estimate the
0: different ways that wind farms and, you know, the associated construction and, and traffic around them um, could potentially impact right whales. And mm-hmm. models are, so I don't know if you've talked to a lot of modelers, but something we like to say is all models are wrong some models are useful. So we acknowledge that these models are not going to perfectly capture the interactions between the population and this new construction plan. Um, But if we can build a sort of a thoughtful, useful model that will allow us to move forward with wind energy development in a way that reduces risk for the right whale population, then that would be successful. Mm-hmm. So I'm involved in um some of those projects right now, trying to develop models that will help us best manage wind farm construction. And you know, they're not finished. And so I, there's no results that I can share with you, but my gut is that the probably the best thing that we can do is to only build new turbines in places and at times that right whales are not going to be present. I think construction is going to be the hardest part on right whales, right? It's it's the time period with highest risk. So if we can plan construction around the seasonal occupancy of the animal in the area that the wind farm
1: is planned, I think we can reduce a lot of that risk. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And have these wind farms, is it something that is like we're still figuring out if it's going to happen or is it a matter of when it's going to happen?
0: I think it's a matter of when it's going to happen.
1: Yeah. yeah, so the leases have been
0: drawn. You can go onto BOEM's website and see a map of the of where these wind farms are being planned. So now it's just sort of a matter of going through the environmental impact assessment, which strongly includes right whales because they're so critically endangered. Mm -hmm. um so that you know this construction and operation activity that's going to happen is is done as carefully as it can be
1: absolutely yeah no that totally makes sense um yeah I feel like it's it's definitely a tough situation because you're trying to better the environment with the wind farms but like potentially can hurt something um that is extremely fragile um so it's definitely like a tough position to be in. I'm sure for those of our listeners that maybe want to learn more about right whales or they want to help right whales. Uh, do you have any recommendations for resources or things that they can do? Um, ooh,
0: I get this question a lot and I've never really been satisfied with my answer for it. Um. You, If you want to learn more about right whales, a really fun resource is the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium maintains a photo ID catalog mm-hmm. and anybody can go on the internet and click through all the different whales that we've identified, you know, see pictures that have been taken of those whales, learn about how we can identify whales and so, you know, there's, there's hand-drawn maps of sort of the features on a whale's face that allows us to identify them. And you can link up the photos that we take of the animal with the pictures that we've drawn of the animal and, and see how we can match these animals. And it's amazing. And it's part of the reason why, why my work specifically and a lot of the work I've talked about today, like, the, you know, the big models for figuring out wind farm impacts, they're so successful because of just this extremely rich database. You know, we can take a picture of an animal and say, oh, I know exactly which animal that is. And we can take a picture of it again in a few months and see how it's traveled or take a picture of it again years later. And so we learn so much about how the population moves and how the population um, sort of grows and changes and reproduces and lives and dies based off of this great data set. So I'd encourage people to go and just click around in the photo ID catalog. It's it's really fascinating.
1: Awesome, I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes here. Um, And a question that I always ask people, um, depending on what we're talking about, is what can we learn from the whales? What can we learn from the North Atlantic right whales? So, Specifically,
0: with what's happened in 2017, this really rapid unexpected distribution shift causes this really devastating decline in the population size, you know, it just, it took us all by surprise. And it shouldn't have because we have seen models in all the papers I published before this event happened. I always pointed to these papers that say, hey, climate change is going to cause their prey to move farther north. And so we've always been saying, you know, well, eventually right whales are going to be moving farther north, you know, but we expected it to be gradual and we didn't expect it to happen so soon. And that's a lot of the story that we're hearing with climate change and, you know, ecological response to climate change. It's unpredictable and it's oftentimes happening faster than we expect it to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, our models are maybe moving too slow. And I would really like what happened with the right whales in this these past years to be a message to sort of everybody else who's managing a species, you know, or who's dealing with a endangered, threatened, overfished, you know, you name it, some species that requires human intervention. We've got to be more flexible and really on our toes when we imagine how climate change is going to impact these animals, because it's, Probably not going to happen the the way that we expect it to. And if it happens quickly, and if it happens in a a manner that happens to be devastating, it would be great if we could respond really quickly, you know, or or predict it. But I, I really hope that right whales are a sentinel in that regard. They make us all pay more attention to climate impacts on, you know, on the other systems that are being studied.
1: Yeah. That was a really good answer. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, are there any final thoughts or things that you want to share with our listeners? Nope. I think that about covers it. I think so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was definitely a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Awesome.